So glad that you are here. Uh, I'm actually surprised that I'm here. And so, uh, so nobody knows this except for, uh, for Leah and Jeremy. Uh, I was supposed to be away this week and was going to be at a conference and was looking very forward to that. And the place that I was flying to had bad weather and they delayed me and I was going to miss what I was going to be speaking at and so ended up canceling my trip. And, uh, and that means I get to be with you all tonight. And so I'm excited about that. That's the, the highlight of this week. By the way, everybody at work except three people think I'm at the conference and that's been great. I've been uh, squirreled away in our library and in, uh, in coffee shops around the area getting work done, and so it's been a, it's been a wonderful thing. We are going to talk about Paul's epistles tonight, but, but, tonight, but before we do, I uh, wanted to run just a few things by you that are up here on the board. First, you picked up a card a few minutes ago, maybe as you were coming in, that mentions next spring we're going to start back, and the topic is going to be... Uh, Christian belief, basic Christian doctrine. The date's actually January 10th, not January 11th. January 11th is a Thursday. So if you come on a Thursday, you'll be here by yourself. But, uh, but we will start on uh, Wednesday, January 10th. And we'll do exactly what we've done this semester, except it'll be 12 weeks uh, going through basic Christian doctrine. And I'm very, very excited about that. And then I thought I would go ahead kind of as the, the pregame before we really get started, just giving you four kind of quick facts or theories about the Apostle Paul before we get into it. And so they're up here for you because I think I'm only going to mention maybe a couple of them in the notes. Uh, Paul, we have no idea when Paul was born or how old he was, but we know that more or less his ministry was between 30 and 35 years, probably about A.D. 33, maybe A.D. 32, until about A.D. 65. So when we talk about Paul, we're not going to be talking about his whole life because we don't know a whole lot about him other than testimony-type facts uh, before he's active on the scene. Uh, We don't know when he was born. And we don't even know with certainty when he died, but we have a pretty good guess. Uh, Second thing is, uh, you'll probably remember this, he was a Pharisee who became a Christian. He talks a lot about that in his uh, testimony. So I wanted you to kind of have that in the background because a couple of weeks ago we talked a lot about the Pharisees. He probably had poor eyesight. You've probably heard that before if you've been in church for a while. Uh, he probably had poor eyesight. We'll mention a little bit later why we think that's the case. And then the last thing is throughout his ministry, he was unmarried. Now it's possible he was a lifelong bachelor, Some speculate he might have been a widower. I don't know if he was married or not. But what we do know is that he was unmarried during his ministry, at least, and he's going to actually reflect on that in some of his writings. And so there's just a few kind of quick hits about Paul to prime the pump. Let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll get down to the fun stuff. Father, we thank you for this evening, and we thank you that We have the opportunity to be back here together uh, learning about your word. Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work uh, among us and through us. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to think well for your glory and our good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So welcome to our next to last official meeting this semester. 
you'll remember the Equip Institute exists to equip members of Taylor's First Baptist to think rightly about God and His Word for the sake of living rightly before God in His world. If you stick with us in the spring, by the time you go through 24 or 25 weeks of hearing that, you'll be, it'll be on your lips as you fall asleep at night, the, the motto of the Equip Institute. Uh, this fall, we are spending 12 weeks studying the Christian story. Last week, we talked about the Gospels and Acts. This week, we're going to look at Paul's epistles, and then we'll come back in a couple of weeks and we'll conclude officially with a discussion of the later epistles and Revelation. That'll also be very quick hit. Everybody got excited when I said Revelation, but it's not what you think. You know, definitely 30,000 foot view. And then remember on December 6th, that Wednesday night, we will have a, uh, a bonus meeting where we'll just conversate with each other and uh, chit-chat about some of the things that, uh, that we've been talking about or whatever else you would like to talk about. So let's talk about Paul. Uh, we're going to have, I think, a lot of fun tonight. So we want to start out by talking about Paul and his ministry. According to the book of Acts, Saul of Tarsus was a devout, highly educated Pharisee who early on took a leading role in persecuting the earliest Christians in and around Jerusalem. If you've been with us for our Acts series back in the spring, uh, Josh was preaching through this period of uh, Paul's life whenever he was persecuting the church. Around A.D. 33, he was converted dramatically to faith in Jesus. And after a period of three years studying the scriptures in Arabia, he reemerged as an evangelist as an evangelist in modern-day Syria. Taking the name Paul, his ministry was validated by the apostles in Jerusalem, and he eventually became connected to Barnabas, another evangelist. And the two of them became leaders of the church in Antioch in the mid-40s. Now, there's a lot we don't know about that period in Paul's life. We know about the three years that he was in the Arabian wilderness, but when you hear that, don't think Saudi Arabia. It might have been Saudi Arabia, but uh, Arabia was basically Middle Eastern desert. He could have been in Egypt. He could have been in Syria. We don't know. The point is he's gone away from the towns and the cities, and he's gone out to study the Scriptures in the wilderness. Uh, there's a period whenever he comes back of four, uh, excuse me, of almost a decade where it seems like he's just in Jerusalem and then mostly uh, in the area in and around Damascus. This is before he's writing letters. So we just speculate, and I think this is sanctified speculation, that he's just doing ministry. He's preaching the gospel. He's investing in those churches that were already there. But this is before he begins his missionary journey. So here's the background. Paul is a believer for over a decade before he begins his missionary journeys. He has studied the Scriptures both as a Pharisee and as a new convert. He's worked with the apostles. He has made friends. And, uh, and there's a lot of background there that Again, we just don't know, but that we have some pretty good guesses about. Between 47 and 57, about 10 years, Paul undertook three missionary journeys throughout Palestine and Europe. Sometimes he started new churches, and other times he encouraged existing churches. 
His typical pattern, and Josh has talked about that even in the last two weeks, was to begin his evangelistic work in the synagogues, some of which contained Jewish followers of Jesus. Then he would pivot his ministry to the Gentiles. Because of his emphasis on the latter, Paul is known as the apostle of the Gentiles. But again, we hear that sometimes and it can be a little bit misleading. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, but in almost every city he begins working with the Jews first, just seeing what's there. Is, are there already believers? Are some of them receptive to the gospel? But then pretty soon he moves on to work with the Gentiles. During the final seven years of his life, Paul was often imprisoned or under house arrest, though it is possible during one of those periods that he was freed and traveled to Spain. There's been a lot of speculation about that. You may have read about this in a Sunday school quarterly or in a study Bible. We don't know for sure, but it's at least possible that uh, that, that happened during that time. He was probably martyred in Rome during the reign of Nero in the year 64 or 65, uh, there's not a record of that happening in the New Testament, but many of the early Christian leaders in the next generation said that Paul and Peter were martyred around the same time by Nero. So we can't prove it, but there's not a good reason to question it either. So that seems likely uh, to have been the case. Paul personally knew many of the apostles who had been among Jesus' earliest followers, including James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter, who along with Paul were the most influential leaders in that first generation of Christians. We know all the apostles were active, but some of them we don't know what they did other than they were sent out and they were preaching. Others we know some things about them, but these uh, John, we know more about him a little bit later with what's happening as he's writing books that we're going to talk about next week. But, uh, but it seems like these three men, uh, James, Jesus' half-brother, Peter and Paul are kind of the three early key leaders uh, in those first uh, couple of decades of Christianity. Paul also worked alongside many partners during his three decades or so of public ministry. The most notable included Barnabas, John Mark, the same Mark who wrote the gospel, Silas, Timothy, and Luke who also wrote a gospel. So two, diff two different gospel writers that were closely connected to Paul at different times of his ministry. But what Paul is best known for are his epistles, his letters, many of which were considered Scripture and became part of the New Testament. Now some of you, your antenna may have gone off. Many of which, what are you talking about? Well, we know he wrote other letters that for whatever reason we don't have. The Holy Spirit didn't see fit to preserve those. So it's reasonable to think that Paul was writing lots of letters and for whatever reason, uh, unknown to us but known to the Lord, these are the ones that had the information that we needed that were preserved for us and that were passed along and saved. He wrote all his known epistles between about A.D. 48 and A.D. 65. Some were written to individuals, such as Philemon and the pastoral epistles to Timothy and Titus, but most were written to churches. Many of his letters were dictated and transcribed by an assistant. Maybe, again, because Paul had poor eyesight. That's the, uh, 
the number one theory for why it happened. And, and we think that because there's a couple of different places where Paul talks about his handwriting even. He says, look at what big letters I'm using. Now, some of you are more seasoned saints. And you know that whenever we become a little bit more seasoned, it gets harder to read sometimes, right? And we write bigger letters and we like large print books and things like that. And so, again, the, the thought is that maybe Paul struggled with poor eyesight and that's why he had folks whom he was dictating to and they were writing those letters for him. Now, liberal scholars question the authorship of some of the letters attributed to Paul, but the traditional view is that Paul wrote all of them and there is no compelling reason to reject the traditional view. Uh, almost every conservative Bible scholar almost everywhere says if Paul's name is on the front of it, Paul wrote it. And there is no good reason to guess that Paul didn't write it. So that's a little bit of background about who he is and a very, very cursory 30,000-foot view of his ministry. Any questions about Paul the man before we start talking about those writings? That's where the real action is going to be tonight. Yes, sir. I don't think he did. I think he wanted to go to Spain. That's clear. Um, I don't see a reason in Scripture to think that he went to Spain. And as best as I can tell, uh, that becomes a rumor later in that part of Europe that of course Paul visited here. And Look at this antiquity and whatnot. But there were also lots of rumors all over Europe about lots of apostles being there at different times and them being buried in multiple places and this and that. So I don't think we can rule it out. It's possible, but I don't think it's a slam dunk case. And because I think Scripture doesn't point us to anything besides Paul's desire to do so, the picture seems to be he's going to end his life in prison. But it's possible. It's possible he went to Spain. Other questions? There are references okay. to other letters that are not in Scripture. The most noteworthy is uh, he references in 1 Corinthians an earlier letter. So 1 Corinthians is not the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians. It's the first letter to the Corinthians that we have. And so there's also uh, some early manuscripts that are similar to Ephesians and Colossians with some details that are different that were addressed to other churches. And so it looks like it's possible that some of his letters, perhaps those two, there's a lot of this, especially a lot of speculation about Colossians, uh, were actually uh, form-type letters where it was 90% the same, but then there'd be a couple of details that were different for the churches, and he was sending them around. Uh, to give you one example, there's almost a word-for-word -word copy of Colossians that says Laodicea at the beginning. It was to the church at Laodicea. So again, there's a lot of speculation that there were other types of letters that were around there, but again, these were the ones that the Holy Spirit preserved for us as Scripture. Well, in Colossians, he tells them, send the letter. Yeah, say, pass it around. Yeah, that's right. Laodicea, that's right. And read the letter from that's right. Laodicea. That's right. So, yeah. Two 
That is possible. So there are some that speculate that there was also a fourth letter. That what we really that what we call First and Second Corinthians are really Second and Third Corinthians, and there might have been a fourth one. I think the case for the First Corinthians that we don't the, let's call it uh, Corinthians zero. <laughs> I, there, he definitely wrote Corinthians zero. We have First and Second Corinthians. I think that fourth one is speculation, but there's a lot of folks who think he might have done that because it was that church was such a hot mess. We're going to talk about them in a minute. That's a theological term, by the way, hot mess. That church was a hot mess, and it seems like there was an ongoing effort to try and correct them and help them to grow in their faith. All right, let's talk about those different Pauline epistles. Paul is often considered the most important theologian in the early church, and there's three reasons why he's kind of earned that reputation. First, and I think this stands out, Many of his letters are filled with rich doctrinal content at the very time the church was growing and first becoming a transnational multi-ethnic movement. This is the generation where it's spreading, the generation where it's incorporating Gentiles into this movement that early on is mostly Jewish followers of Christ. And when all that's happening, Paul's the one shaping the doctrine a little bit more, or at least in greater quantity, than others who are writing. So that's the first reason. The second reason, though, is because he was a missionary who wrote to individuals and churches all over the Roman Empire, his ideas spread rapidly among the earliest believers. I want to take you all the way back to, I think, the second week we were together, and we talked about the canonization of Scripture. If you remember, we talked about how the earliest records that we have of what's now the New Testament contained Paul's letters in the Gospels. Other stuff they wrestle through as those things are being written, but Paul's letters were written before the earliest Gospels. And then we have the Gospels. And so Paul's ideas are spreading more rapidly than, say, the Epistle of James or Revelation or something like that. Paul's stuff is out there because Paul is out there. So he has a disproportionate amount of influence in the early church. Finally, several of his letters were written before there were any Gospels, and all of his letters were written before John, and maybe Luke wrote their Gospels. Except for the book of James... Paul's first half dozen letters are the earliest scriptures in the New Testament. James probably wrote his letter first, and we know that James died early on. We'll mention that briefly tonight, and then we'll talk about it more next week. But with the exception of James's epistle, uh, Paul's letters are the earliest things that we have in the New Testament. So we're going to briefly introduce each of his letters, and then we're going to look at the recurring themes found across his letters. We're not going to get bogged down in debates between conservative and liberal scholars, there are lots of them, or between Catholic and Protestant scholars, there are lots of them. We're just going to assume that a conservative evangelical interpretation of Paul and his thought is correct. So if we have a little bit of time at the end, we can talk about some of those debates if you want to, but I'd, I'd rather focus on what we think we know uh, rather than spending too much time talking about all the fun debates that are out there. We're going to discuss each letter in chronological order 
based upon when they were likely written rather than canonical order. So any questions before we start talking about the letters? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the letters, some basic information about each letter, and then our last section is really going to be kind of like a theology of Paul that we pull out of those letters. Does that make sense? So that's kind of the approach we're going to take tonight. But any questions? All right. Here we go. Galatians. Galatians is the earliest of Paul's letters likely written in late 48 or early 49. Paul was preaching in Galatia around 47, 48. So he's likely writing about a year, maybe two, after he's in Galatia. The Jerusalem council likely took place in 49, and it almost certainly would have been referenced in the letter had it already occurred because the Jerusalem council settles the question that Paul's addressing in Galatians. So chances are Galatians comes before the Jerusalem council. The main theme is that Jesus' death has inaugurated the new covenant that has fulfilled the old covenant. Contrary to false Jewish teachers, he calls them the Judaizers, Both Jewish and Gentile believers are part of the one people of God and are justified by faith rather than observance of the ceremonial aspects of the law. So that's kind of a big picture of what he's getting at with Galatians. And again, almost everybody thinks it was his first letter. The only other thing that's in the running is maybe being before Paul wrote Galatians is our next one, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians was likely written sometime between 49 and 51 during Paul's second missionary journey. The main theme is the importance of the second coming of Christ, which will result in eternal blessing for believers and God's just wrath against sin for unbelievers. Christians should be motivated by the second coming to live holy and blameless lives. I want to chase a rabbit for just a minute. I don't know about your church background, and I don't know a lot about the history of Taylor's First Baptist. So I'm just going to come into this sort of neutral and share my experience. Uh, After I became an evangelical, I was actually raised in a mainline liberal church, kind of through elementary school and middle school. But in our high school years, we started going to a Southern Baptist church. And it was the sort of Southern Baptist church that loved prophecy charts. You know what I'm talking about, right? We loved us some prophecy charts. And uh, and in our church, whenever somebody would talk about the second coming, at least for me as a teenager and then as someone in my early 20s, I would hear second coming and I would immediately think timeline and charts and those sorts of things. Now, I think there's value in studying that. But I also think we should keep the emphasis where the Bible does. And in the Bible especially in Paul's letters, whenever he's talking about the second coming, his focus is on how we ought to live in light of the second coming. And the focus is almost always on one or two things. Pursue personal holiness and be urgent in evangelism. So if you'll allow me just a pastoral word for a minute. I know I'm not preaching. When you think about the second coming, it's okay to think about the charts, and it's okay to think about the timelines, and it's okay to think about what's happening in the world, 
But what we can't do is not think about what Paul tells us we ought to be thinking about. When we think about the second coming, we need to remember we pursue holiness because our Lord is coming back. And we tell other people about the gospel because our Lord is coming back. That's the emphasis in the New Testament. And it, we get it, bless you, and we get it very early on in Paul's writing ministry in 1 Thessalonians. But they didn't get it. So he had to write him another letter. And that leads us to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians was probably written in that same time period. I mean, it obviously came after 1 Thessalonians, but it's just sometime in that couple of year period of time, shortly after the first one. The main theme is further teaching about the second coming, since some Thessalonians thought it had already happened. So he says, okay, here's how it is going to be. At the end of the present age, many false believers will rebel against the faith, and an antichrist will rise and persecute true believers, the man of lawlessness. Jesus will return to conquer his enemies. So our earliest writings about antichrist, apostasy at the end of the age, uh, tribulation, actually coming from First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, it's not the earliest uh, teaching that there is. Uh, it's the earliest teaching to be written for us uh, is First and Second Thessalonians. Then we get to the fun one, First Corinthians. Let me just say, if the Lord ever leads you to move somewhere else in the church's Corinth Baptist Church, pray long and hard, folks, before you move your letter there. Maybe you've been a member of a Corinth Baptist Church, and if so, I'm not talking about you because I don't know your story. But pray about it. 1 Corinthians was likely written between 53 and 55 during Paul's third missionary journey. 1 Corinthians does not have one main theme. Instead, it's more topical. He's addressing a laundry list of things. The church was deeply divided by different factions, by differing opinions over debatable ethical matters and extra-biblical practices, think eating meat sacrificed to idols, and the tolerating of significant sexual sin. Think about the man who was sleeping with his stepmother. Paul calls upon them to put their differences aside, repent of all their various sins, and there's a lot of them in there, and unite around a gospel-centered love for each other and for unbelievers and to labor together to advance the good news. I've had pastor friends, their theory when they go into a new church is to preach through 1 Corinthians, first thing they do. Because they said just about everything a church is going to fight over is going to come up in 1 Corinthians. And so you may as well just go ahead and figure out where the tension points are. And I don't know if I'd do that, but I've had friends, that's their theory. But again, we have a hard-headed local church. So they needed a 2 Corinthians, which again might have been a 3 Corinthians in terms of what he actually wrote. 2 Corinthians was likely written about a year after 1 Corinthians, probably no later than about 55 or 56. The main theme is Paul's validation of his apostolic ministry and his call for the Corinthians to pursue holiness and endure persecution when that's necessary. Believers are new creations who are set apart to be ambassadors for Christ. And one sign 
that the Spirit is at work is that there's not only spiritual fruit, that's the good sign, but there's also opposition to gospel advance, and that's the negative sign. Paul's telling us that when the gospel is moving forward, two things happen. People's lives are changed, and the enemy responds to the advance of the gospel. So 1st and 2nd Corinthians, both uh, some of my favorite passages in the Bible are in 2nd Corinthians, and some of the most fun passages in the Bible are in 1st Corinthians. But let's talk about Romans, because half of you want to know about that one anyway. Romans was likely written in 57 during Paul's third missionary journey. The main theme is an extended meditation on the gospel and its implications for the Christian life. Um, I've heard Romans referred to as uh, sort of like the systematic theology book of the New Testament. Uh, There's just a lot of rich doctrine and very much arising out of the gospel. All humans are sinners, but salvation has been accomplished through the perfectly obedient life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Jesus. The Mosaic law has no power to save. He talked about that in Galatians as well. So all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, must be justified by grace through faith in Jesus. This has all been a part of God's plan of salvation from before the foundation of the world. So he's building on some themes he's already written about. Some of this is there, especially in Galatians and 2 Corinthians. Some of it with resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15. But he's kind of bringing it all together, and it's this extended meditation on the gospel. And then he probably writes what is many people's favorite of his epistles, Philippians. Philippians was likely written around 60 when Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea. It is the first of his prison epistles. So everything he's written before now, he writes Galatians before he goes on a missionary journey. He writes those next few letters while he's on his second and third missionary journey, and now he's in prison, and he's going to write the rest of his letters. So Philippians is the first one. The main theme is an encouragement to remain joyful no matter our circumstances because we are citizens of God's kingdom. Jesus is fully God and fully man, the servant king who calls for us to imitate him. I love Philippians. I'd preach through Philippians first. Maybe then we'd do 1 Corinthians, but... Start with Philippians. Start with joy. Start with Jesus being the God-man and imitating Him. Colossians is our next letter. Colossians was likely written around 62 when Paul wrote several letters while imprisoned in Rome. The main theme is that Jesus is Lord over all of creation, including both the seen and the unseen realms. He has redeemed us and given us new spiritual life. He calls upon believers to live out the implications of our new life in Him. I love Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is my favorite passage in the New Testament where it talks about uh, the supremacy of Jesus Christ over all things. And uh, so Colossians 
likely written around 62 and likely written around the same time as Philemon and Ephesians. We actually don't know which ones came first. I've just sort of put them this way. We just know they were all written around the same time. So around the same time, Philemon, likely written 62 when Paul wrote several letters while imprisoned in Rome. It is a short letter to Philemon, a believer, asking him to be reconciled with Onesimus, a runaway slave who has since become a follower of Jesus. While Paul does not overtly call for Onesimus to be emancipated from slavery, the new relationship between Philemon and Onesimus as brothers in Christ would have undermined the Roman practice of slavery. So here's what you're going to hear sometimes. You're going to hear sometimes Paul's not against slavery because he didn't say Philemon free Onesimus. You're going to hear others say, well, he was obviously against slavery uh, because of the way that uh, they would have related to each other uh, now as brothers in Christ. And it's somewhere in between. If he was clearly pushing back on slavery, he would have clearly pushed back on slavery. But there is no doubt that the way he talks about Onesimus being received back by Philemon, their new relationship, it would look nothing like what Roman slavery looked like. So it's at least transforming their understanding of slavery in the Roman Empire based upon this new relationship. By the way, we cannot prove this with certainty, but the early church right after the time of the New Testament, the same folks who tell us that Peter and Paul were martyred by Philemon and that John uh, was uh, writing his gospel last and whatnot, so we lean on them for a lot of things. doesn't mean they're right about everything, but those same folks tell us that Onesimus was freed. And there we know there was a bishop, a pastor, in this period named Onesimus. And so some of the early church fathers tell us that they are reconciled, that Philemon does free Onesimus, and Onesimus becomes a pastor. We can't prove that. It is not in the New Testament, but it is a very, very, very old story from the same sources that we use to confirm a lot of things that are in the New Testament. So I give that to you with an asterisk, but definitely possible. Ephesians was likely written around 62 when Paul wrote several letters while imprisoned in Rome. The letter has two main themes. First, God has an eternal plan of salvation through Jesus that includes the reconciliation of individual humans, you and me, and the restoration of the entire created order, saving people and transforming all of creation. Second, because all believers share in their union with Christ, he's already talked about that in Galatians and Romans, they should be united with each other regardless of ethnic distinctions, social status, or familial roles. He's returning to that theme that he talked about especially in Galatians and a little bit in Romans and chasing that with Ephesians. Then we get to the last three. 
1 Timothy was likely written between 63 and 65 when Paul was imprisoned in Rome and wrote all three of his pastoral epistles. The letter was written to Timothy, but was also clearly intended for a wider audience as well. We know it was passed around because there are lots of copies of it early on. The main theme is a reflection on the relationship between the gospel and godly living. But an important sub-theme, it's not the main theme, but it's why we call these the pastoral epistles, is a discussion of church order, including especially the role of elders and deacons. So if you've ever been a part of a deacon ordination service, or if you're one of the, uh, the men who are here who have served in uh, the ministry of the gospel somewhere, and you've been a part of an ordination council, uh, you know, those pastoral lists, here's the qualifications for elders or pastors and deacons. This is one of our big lists. It comes out of 1 Timothy. So this is why these, uh, these particular prison epistles are called the pastoral epistles rather than the prison epistles. So they're talking about pastoral leadership, among other things. 2 Timothy was likely written between 63 and 65 when Paul was imprisoned in Rome and wrote all three of those letters. The letter was written to Timothy, but again, was also clearly intended for a wider audience. The main theme of 2 Timothy is to persevere in faithfulness, including the advance of the gospel, even in the midst of suffering. And Paul knew what it was like to suffer. He's in prison. Either 2 Timothy or Titus was Paul's final canonical letter. We don't know which one, so I just went ahead and put 1 and 2 Timothy together. But it's possible Titus came in between the two. But we know Titus and 2 Timothy are the last two he writes. So that brings us to Titus. Again, same sort of information, likely written between 63 and 65 when Paul was imprisoned in Rome and wrote all three of those letters. The letter was written to Titus, but was also clearly intended for a wider audience as well. The main theme is a reflection on protecting the gospel from false teachers and persevering in godly living. Like 1 Timothy, an important sub-theme is a discussion of church order, talking again about elders and deacons. And either 2 Timothy or Titus was Paul's final canonical letter. Major emphasis is so interesting to me. At the very beginning, the very first letter that we know of that Paul writes is Galatians. And what's he doing? Going after false teachers. Likely the last letter he writes, Titus, what's he doing? He's going after false teachers. His ministry from beginning to end is defending the gospel, defending the true faith in these letters, explaining what it means against these false teachers that he's contending with in different parts of the Roman world. Uh, I have a sermon that I've preached at a, a couple of our seminaries that comes from Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, which is his long section on false teachers. And uh, the only reason I'm telling you that is because it's my all-time favorite sermon title. I'm not very creative. But uh, the, the name of the sermon is The Danger of False Teachers or Why You Can't Trust Almost Anything You Hear on TBN. <laughs> so what questions do... Uh, I'd have to change it to podcast now, but that, that was not as, not as popular back when I preached those sermons. So I know that that's a really quick tiptoe through all those letters, just focusing on the big themes, and obviously some of them are recurring, and we're really going to do that here in the next section. But do you have any questions about particular letters or 
something that, uh, that you may have heard about that I didn't mention or that you're wondering about? Yes, sir. That is a great question. As opposed to the, the, the chronological why order. So it's so interesting. I actually have a, uh, I have a, so there's two different theories. Let me say this. There's two different theories. The most common theory, and it's boring. I'm just telling you it's boring. This most common theory is that he begins with Romans because it's so long and talks about so much stuff. And then moves to the Corinthians because they're almost as long and they talk about a whole bunch of stuff. And then kind of the pastorals are there at the end because they came at the end. So he kind of begins with the longest letters and moves to the shorter letters and then has the, the other ones at the end because they were the last ones. Perfectly plausible. Boring. I have a good friend who teaches at uh, Oklahoma Baptist University. He's published a book on this topic. And, uh, and he actually argues, and I think he's right, that, uh, that there's more intentionality. It's not just about the length and whatnot, but he begins with Romans because it's the most systematic discussion of what it means to be a Christian. And then First and Second Corinthians are dealing with churches that are wrestling with the implications of that, and he's dealing with those ethical issues. And it keeps going like that, that, it, that there's a logic to why they're kind of put together the way they are, and that what's happening, and all those early lists have them in almost the same order. There's very little variation. So his argument is very early on, Christian leaders recognized that there was, now that they had these letters from Paul, there was a particular way they wanted to tell the story. So his argument is the same sort of intentionality that goes into the order of the Old Testament in their version with the law and the prophets and the writings, which is a little bit different than how we have it. But in the same way that they were telling the story of Israel in a particular way, so the early Christians were telling the story of the new Israel in a particular way, beginning with that longest exposition of what the Christian faith is and then moving down into the different implications of it. He might be wrong about that, but I like that so much better than Romans is longer. And then those other ones were last. Other questions? Y'all are very tame tonight. Weather's changing. You just ate a big meal. I get it. Let's, uh, let's talk about Paul's thought. Again, as I was wrestling with how to put this lesson together, I thought that it would just, because he talks about so many of the same things in different letters, uh, you know, Paul is one of the easiest people. It's not always easy, but he's one of the easiest figures in the New Testament to sort of step back and pull the different ideas out and say, here's Paul's theology. It's not that there's not debatable stuff. He just wrote about so much. It's a little bit easier for us to put it together. So that's really what we're going to do here. The following themes, I would argue, are not the only things, but I think these themes are consistent in Paul's thought. We find all of them in multiple epistles. So that's why we're focusing on this. And I've put them in... There's a logic to how I put them in, in a particular order. So this is not a chronological thing. Uh, we're just moving through kind of his understanding of the Christian life. The triune God is glorified in both creation and redemption. We see that throughout Paul's writings. 
God has a sovereign plan of salvation that stretches from eternity past into eternity future. We see that in multiple of his letters. All people are sinners. We are incapable of reconciling ourselves with God. And obedience to the Mosaic law is powerless to save anyone. A major theme throughout Paul's letters. The gospel, the good news, is the saving announcement. That's what that word gospel means. It's an announcement. It's the saving announcement that Jesus perfectly obeyed God's commands, died on the cross for human sin, and was bodily resurrected as a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and promises. Paul talks a lot about the cross and about the resurrection and about that being the heart of the gospel. Justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, resulting in our spiritual union with Christ and adoption into God's family. I'm going to stop there for just a minute. Those most recent three together, the idea that we can't save ourselves and the law can't do it, the idea that salvation is rooted in the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the idea that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, those are the great themes of the Protestant Reformation. There's a reason that people like Martin Luther and John Calvin and less famous individuals who were around them that are known to the theology nerds but maybe are not recognizable names, those reformers were drawn to Paul. They weren't just drawn to Paul. They read all of it. But in Paul, they found truths that directly challenged the legalism of medieval Catholicism and the sort of superstitions that they felt like were ensnaring people in local churches. They found Paul's writings to be life-giving as an explanation of how it is that we're saved and, and what it means to be saved and what is the gospel and how the gospel is not the law, but how the law points to the gospel. And so even in these themes in Paul's thought, if you know much about the Reformation, there's some of those solas of the Reformation are embedded there in Paul's thought uh, because that was, uh, again, just a wellspring of life at that time when the Spirit was moving uh, among those various reformers. In Christ, the spiritual unity of believers transcends earthly distinctions, especially the distinction between Jews and Gentiles who comprise the one people of God. Now that's not the only distinction. Talks about the slave and the free, talks about the male and the female. But if you've ever heard the old preacher saying, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, that's a major theme that we see in Paul, is that united in Christ, those things aren't there. Now we need to be careful. What Paul is not saying is that there's no such thing as ethnicity. What he's not saying is there's no such thing as gender. What he's not saying is there's no such thing as those who are slaves and those who are free. Those distinctions still exist. And we have other distinctions now. 
If he was writing the letter now, he might say rich and poor, northerners and southerners, immigrants and people who've been here for more than three generations. He's not saying there aren't real human distinctions between people. But what he's saying is when we're in Christ, as the body of Christ, our in Christness trumps those differences. Does that make sense? Right now in our family, we do a, a weekly family Bible study, and we're going through Galatians with our kids. And we were looking at uh, Galatians 3, 28 last night. And uh, my 15-year-old son hears no male and female, and he says, I bet people say a lot of weird things about that, don't they? I said, yeah, they say a lot of weird things about that. So again, we don't want to pull out a proof text and make it say something it doesn't say. He's not saying there's no such thing as gender. But what he's saying is our in Christness trumps the real differences that are there between males and females, or Jews and Gentiles, or slave and free, or any other sort of genuine human distinction that separates those who are not in Christ because we turn those distinctions into idols or into points of contention or whatever the case might be. Believers are called to gather into local churches to cultivate lives of personal holiness, to engage in urgent evangelism, including across cultures, and to serve those who are in need beginning especially with fellow believers who are in need. These are themes that we see in Paul. This is kind of like living Christianly 101. Go to church, pursue holiness, share the gospel, serve others, especially serve those who are part of the body of Christ. We get so much of what we think about the Christian life from Paul. Those who redefine the message of the gospel are false teachers who should be confronted by leaders and avoided by believers. I mentioned that sermon a few minutes ago that I've, uh, I've preached in several places. One of the things that I've said over the years in teaching roles coming alongside pastors and others is there's an obligation for shepherds to point out the wolves to the sheep. Now, that's an unpopular thing to do because many wolves don't think they're wolves. And it's not always polite to name names. But it is important for pastors and teachers to say that idea is a false gospel. Don't listen to that person. Don't read those books. Now, we have to be careful here. Because not every teaching that is wrong is damnable doctrine. We need to keep the powder dry for the worst sorts of errors. If you have a different view about the millennium than somebody else, you might be wrong or they might be wrong, but that's not really what he means by false teacher. If you have a different understanding about who ought to get wet, when they ought to get wet, and how much of them ought to get wet, somebody's right and somebody's wrong about that, we're right. 
But that's not a damnably incorrect doctrine. There are people who love Jesus and who believe the Bible who we think happen to be wrong about that. So again, we have to be careful here. We don't want to be the sort of... We don't want Christian leaders who are guns blazing with everybody they disagree with. But when doctrine is leading people astray, Christian leaders have an obligation to call out the wolves so that they don't prey upon the sheep. We get that from Paul, especially. Jesus talks a lot about it too. Finally, Jesus will one day return, resulting in the resurrection of the dead, judgment against sin, and the final restoration of the created order. So this is what I'm going to call Paul's basic theology. Let me recommend a couple of resources, and then we'll have almost 10 minutes for questions if you have any, uh, maybe eight minutes. Uh, Every week during these last three meetings, recommending those first two books, Introducing the New Testament, that's our popular level intro, and then The Cradle, The Cross, and The Crown, that's more of a seminary textbook if you're interested. But two two others this week. Charles Quarles' book, The Illustrated Life of Paul, is a wonderful biography, and I would call that an intermediate-level sort of book. So it's, it's, not, it's, a, it's a step above the Christian living section at the Christian bookstore when we used to have Christian bookstores, but, uh, but it's not a seminary textbook, and I think anybody in here would profit from that book. And then for those of you that are feeling very brave and want to dig a little bit deeper... Uh, Tom Schreiner's Paul, Apostle of God's Glory in Christ is, I think, the best study of Paul's theology from a conservative theological perspective. It's seminary level, uh, but it is so informative and so edifying. If you're up to the task, then I think you would be blessed by that. So what questions do we have tonight about Paul, the man, or Paul's thought, or the stuff he wrote? Okay, we'll do uh, Let's Rick and Dan. I'm going to punt on that question until next time. Here's what I would say. Paul definitely believes in something called election because he talks about it and he uses that word. And Christians have been fighting about it. Maybe not for 2,000 years, but for at least 1,800 years. Christians in this church have fought about it in the last 25 years. So we'll talk about that next semester. But there, election is a biblical theme. The question is, what does it mean? To what degree is it a mystery? And is it something worth dividing over? And I'm not naive. I know there's no way I can get through a theology class without talking about that. So, yeah. Yep, it's in the parking lot. Because when I read theology... Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I get it. Next. <laughs> yeah. What about Hebrews and what does that add Paul in theology combined with Paul in Well, I don't think he wrote Hebrews, so I'm, I'm surprised it took us this long to get to that question. 
Um, I don't think Paul wrote Hebrews, and not very many people in church history have thought he wrote Hebrews, although some of the early church fathers did because they didn't know who wrote Hebrews, and that made them nervous. But, uh, but if, you, if you look at it in the, uh, in the original Greek especially, uh, I'll just say this. Whoever wrote Hebrews is a way better writer than Paul. I don't mean that doctrinally. I mean like he put sentences together better than Paul did. Um, if it adds, what I would say, uh, without jumping the gun too much, is uh, it's going to complement especially those themes of uh, the one people of Christ, digging a little bit deeper into the sacrificial system and how that's going to complement the writings that we've talked about tonight whenever it comes to uh, the atonement and resurrection. I think it's going to complement that a lot. And, uh, and to Rick's point, it's going to sound very different than how many people understand Paul on election uh, whenever they look at Hebrews on falling away. Uh, which is another one of those big things that Christians have been debating for maybe not 2,000 years, but at least 1,800 years. But I think the biggest thing is enriching the picture we see. So let me say, not uh, just from a New Testament theology perspective, uh, seeing how the author of Hebrews engages with more Scripture from the Old Testament than any other writer except Revelation and the teachings that we get on the sacrificial system greatly complements the things that we see in Paul and, and to some extent in John as well about the atonement and seeing how those two things are tied together and how Jesus' death is a sacrifice that fulfills the sacrifices and it's a forever sacrifice. Now see, you're not trying to get me distracted, but here's my secret. I told you all a minute ago that uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is my favorite passage in the New Testament, but Hebrews is my favorite book in the Bible. So I'm going to try really hard not to, uh, not to get too rabbit chasey next week. Could you live with it being in a menu seat that's sort of like um, Do you mean by that somebody who was tr uh, taking down Paul's stuff? Somebody, okay, so is it, can I live with it somebody, as somebody who is offering further commentary on Paul, if you will, and extending it? Okay, what do you mean by amenuses? That he would have, that he would have used and had transcribed other stuff for him. Uh, possible. Yeah, I mean, I could live, I mean, I could live with that. But I'm very much in the camp of God only knows who wrote. So, um... I don't think it was Paul, but it could have been somebody in Paul's circles. I have a friend who thinks it was Luke. He wrote a book on that. Uh, I have other friends who think it was Apollos. I even had one professor, and this is a liberal, I had a liberal professor who said it had to be Priscilla. <laughs> had to be Priscilla, and it's anonymous because, uh, because she was female. We don't, I mean, yeah, we don't know who wrote it, but definitely could have been somebody closely tied to Paul. We have time for at least one more if it's not too long. Yep. Well, that's okay. So, um, is the fact that, and you guys correct me if I'm wrong here, the fact that Paul is the only New Testament writer that addresses anything about the spiritual gifts, is that just because of the churches he's writing, especially Corinthians, but is that because of the churches he's writing to, why don't we not 
see that talked about outside of Paul's letter? I don't know the answer to that question. That's a great question. Um, I mean, clearly with the Corinthians, he's dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I could have added that that's a major theme in Paul's writings that's not present to the same degree, if any, in, uh, in the other writings. So it's something he clearly cares a lot about. Maybe it's tied to the missionary work that he's doing uh, because he's out there kind of on the front lines. And we certainly see spiritual gifts being practiced by some of the other apostles in the book of Acts. And so maybe that's part of that missionary perspective, but I don't know. It's a great question. We do have time for one more. The road to Damascus, his conversion, the great illumination. Sure, I love that. He's greatly illuminated whenever he's on the road to Damascus. There's, uh, there's no doubt about it. In more than one way. In more than, in more than, in more than one way, no question. Well, thank you all for your time tonight. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and thank you for uh, the way that you have used him in particular to help us understand so much about the Christian life. Uh, Not just us in this room, but our brothers and sisters in Christ in the communion of saints for the last 2,000 years. Uh, Lord, we pray as always that you would help us to be good students of the Scriptures uh, for our good and for your glory and for the health of this church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.